What do you think the even before Eddie passing, what's the stall on Warner Brothers? I mean, they sent Brian in there 15 years ago. Did they? They have four albums of material. Brian says, "What are, What are they waiting for?" In your opinion? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's uh, challenges with uh, everybody getting on the same page in terms of uh, how they wanted it to to reach the audience. Maybe at the time when the band was still touring and playing, they were like, oh, we don't want to revisit the past. We want to just keep going, you know? Yeah. So maybe it had something to do with that kind of um, thought process or mentality. But I, to a certain degree, um, you know, I don't know that any band ever really thinks too hard about what do the fans really want? They just do what they want to do. Yeah. They're, they're focusing on the music that, uh, that they want to make. But sometimes bands will really be in tune with that and they will give the fans what they want. In the case of Van Halen, it has always been a surprise that there was never just a solo Van Halen record where you could hear just instrumental stuff. Yes. Uh, and and I know that I did uh, talk with Ed about that many times over the years and and he was saying, ah, oh, no one wants to hear that. And I'm like, are you kidding? Everybody would love to hear that. <laughs> so crazy. it was just funny to me because here's a guy that's so super talented, but at the core of it, he was also a, a little bit insecure about um, really putting everything on his own shoulders, you know? So, yeah. And he also would kind of reference Van Halen as being what they do is so specific to them and he gets to play enough that he didn't feel like it was necessary to have any more playing. And and what's amazing about his playing on these records is that he himself is very good at making things be very concise. You don't have extended solos on any of the records. In fact, uh, Push Comes to Shove might be one of the longest solos on the earliest records, but it, it's not until like the Four Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album that he starts having some more extended or longer solos that exist in songs. Usually they're they're pretty succinct, and he's a uh, as uh, as an editor of his own ideas, he could just give you only what was best for the song. You know, he didn't go overboard on and putting all these other things. That's so and, right on. But the thing uh, is, that is so hard to do because if you love playing and you love, you know, doing cool different things on guitar, a lot of people will want to just throw the kitchen sink and put everything in there. Exactly. But, but he didn't, you know? Yeah, restraint. Um, and that is a, a true uh, level of art, artistry and artistic um, maturity to be able to have that. And now some of that could have been because Ted might have had a voice in saying, hey, you know, maybe we don't need as much of that here. Save some in the tank. Because like um, Running With The Devil, the solo that's in that, it used to be uh, double length, but they cut it down and, and it was just as good. You know, you mentioned Fair Warning's your favorite album, but is that time period kind of one through Diver some of your favorite stuff, or do you like the 5150 stuff? I definitely and... love the earliest stuff the most because that's the stuff that I listen to the most. But when the other records started to uh, come out and they were the current uh, records of the time, I was definitely interested in everything that they were doing, but I was also interested in other kinds of music at that point too. Yeah. So 
what I felt like was, as a fan of Edward's music and his playing, was at the point where he was in his own world up in uh, 5150, I was ready to just go on the journey with whatever his tone chasing, whatever the ideas that he was going to do. I'm happy to hear whatever is coming out of there. Uh, and I just took it for what it was record by record. And I wasn't thinking of it in terms of like, oh, I only like the early stuff or I, you know, because some people get very judgmental about music and they get really specific <laughs> so about least. they only like certain <laughs> things. And, you know, if it's not this, then it's terrible or whatever. So I didn't feel that way because I was interested in everything that he did. But I also, in terms of like understanding the plight of an artist, he wants to keep exploring and hearing different sounds and creating new sounds or playing different ways. And for him, he's going to do it because he's just going to do it. If you like it, that's great. If not, but I think he was in a, a, a place where he was uh, scrutinized and judged for making any changes to what he did. And so when people heard him do new things or use a different guitar or use a wah pedal or use the neck pickup as opposed to the bridge pickup, you know, I think sometimes he might have been unfairly judged you know, and people saying, oh, it's not as good, you know, they've lost it. But if you listen to it for what it was, if that was the only record that came out, you didn't have the other stuff, you'd be able to recognize what was great about the playing that's on that specific record. You know, and I'm talking about things like uh, the Balance record or, yeah. or uh, For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. But you, what happens in the later years is some of the focus starts shifting towards Alex getting incredible drum sounds. The early sounds on the records are great and they're really organic, uh -huh. but the personality of his drum sound really came to life, I think probably starting around Fair Warning when, when the, the tuning of the snare drum really got specific. But by the time you get to like the Balance album, that's like, I think the most... Um, personality of of alex's the sound of his kit i mean that really to me is is maybe his best it's a modern drum sound but yeah. it's maybe the most alex uh and so that's the kind of thing where those details become more important on the later records and that's something that i like to listen for but um you Do know you think don landy was progressing as the band was as well in his engineering capabilities and techniques of how he was miking things and how he was tracking them all the time and you know he wanted to reinvent his sound too from how he was capturing this i definitely think so i mean you if you listen to van halen one that is such a specific guitar sound uh, but the the genius of the way that record was recorded and mixed and put together is you hear the distinct personality of everybody in the band. But the band works as a unit, and yet you also know when it's star time for Ed or Dave. You know, so everybody knows what's going on. There's four people. They work together, but every you know when Ed has a solo or when Dave's doing his thing, everybody is is being. Uh, delivered to your speakers, to your ears in the, the best way possible for you to understand what this band is all about. Now, when they go to the second record, 
the guitar sound changes. It's a great guitar sound. It's maybe uh, it has less sizzle than the first record. Yeah. It's less bright. Uh, but then you go from Van Halen 2 to uh, Women and Children First, he has even less gain. Yeah. He's using less effects. And he, that, what, he was using a different guitar too. He was using some hardtail guitars that didn't even have vibrato. And he had um, that star-shaped guitar and the Destroyer and some other stuff. So there's more mid-range that's showing up in that sound. And then by the time Fair Warning comes, that's where there's like, that's where all the low end, mid-range, and top come together in a way that previously had never happened. And that, you talk about Don Landy, uh, I'm going to guess maybe that's where Ed and Don were working the most together to say, I really want to capture the total sound of my amp, not just a little bit of the things that we can fit into the speakers to make sure that you hear it the right way. I want to get the deep depth and the, the rich harmonics of the whole thing because there's more low end on that record and in that sound than on any of the other ones. That makes perfect sense. Definitely during Fair Warning, it kind of they were teaming up, I think. I think so. You had... Um played with them on stage during the Hagar. Uh, I did. I got uh, invited to play in Indianapolis. I played at one show, um, which um, my girlfriend at the time was in the band that was opening for Van Halen. It was a band called Baby Animals, and Susie DeMarkey was the uh, the singer. And um, uh, she, I guess, I don't know what happened, but backstage before the show, they're like, hey, you guys want to come up and play on rock and roll, the Led Zeppelin rock and roll song. <laughs> and it just was a random thing because Ed would come backstage and hang out with the band a lot. He hung out with um, Baby Animals. And, and oftentimes the opening act, Ed would spend time with the opening act. It was just something he liked to do. Yeah. Um, He's probably sick of his own band at that point. Well, you know, I remember at that time um, – I had a video camera and I was filming some stuff that was happening backstage for baby animals. And Ed came back and he started playing just an impromptu jam with them. And he started playing uh, little bits and pieces of things. What people don't know is that Ed was really good at learning other people's uh, parts. Like uh, he, he was playing all of the solo from Highway Star and he, he could sound just like Richie Blackmore. Yeah. You know, Ed could sound like himself, but if he wanted to sound like somebody else, he had the ability to mimic somebody better than, uh, than most people. So, um, but yeah, somehow or another, um, the invitation came to us and we, and we said, okay, but there were, there were bombs going off, you know, the, if you've never been on a stage, on a giant arena kind of soundstage, where it's massive volume from uh, the drums being through everywhere, through all the side fill, and then Ed's guitar everywhere, but then giant concussion explosions of these, uh, you know, firework type things that are super heated. You know, they, they said, okay, listen, if you're going to go up there, just know – don't go in this area and don't go in this area because when those things go off, it's going to be hot as fuck. Wow, yeah. You know? <laughs> it's going to be insane. So It's not the Roxy. It's no. Indianapolis yeah, or Speedway or something. But I was still, I mean, I was like 15 feet away and you could feel the heat from oh, that sure, stuff. Yeah. And it was like, wow, these guys are 
are playing this music all night and bombs are going off while they're playing, you know? So that's a whole other thing. That I, I miss concerts so much. I'm sure you miss touring. I mean, you were pretty much nonstop. When we were playing um, at least 60 to 80 shows a year for 14 years straight. Wow. And the last tour that we were doing, um, we played the very last show in the state of New York um, before, you know, COVID stopped everything. And then you guys took your bus home, didn't you? you told yeah, me? we rode all the way back from New York to Los Angeles. It took three days. And uh, we stopped at all these Walmarts to get supplies because as we were driving home, it was, you know, people just were telling us, oh, you better go get toilet paper. You better go get this stuff. Nothing's in any store. And sure enough, as we we're going across the country and hitting up these places, you would just see shelf after shelf being empty. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was nuts. I'll talk about that a different day. But, um, your relationship with Ed, so obviously, you know, that's just so incredible. He comes to your house at 12 years old, comes to your school. Did you bring the guitar with you that he gave to you? Where? At school? No, you were going to bring a guitar today, didn't oh, you? Oh, yeah, I totally spaced on that. That's, <laughs> that I, I'll send you a photo of it, though. Oh, all right, next yeah. time. We'll put it on the yeah. Instagram or something. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, the guitar that he gave me at that sound check. Um, after playing uh, the show, I called him and thanked him. I said, well, you know, if you need to come get the guitar. He said, oh, no, no, you can have it. Wow. You know, so I, I kept that guitar, and I, that was my main guitar for years. Um, but I, at one point, repainted it because it used to be a, um, a cream color with the orange lightning bolt, like Shazam looking, you know. But I repainted it so that it, had my own version of like a, a Van Halen style design. Um, and uh, so I'll send you a, a photo of it so you can. And you have the it. Rasta guitar too, which I. Yeah, that's the one seen. that Ed played on the Fair Warning tour. He must have loved to give guitars out because I know a lot of people that have some guitars from him. I mean, he must have just loved I, giving guitars well, out. Well, he had a lot of guitars, and sometimes, you know, if if he wasn't playing them and somebody else might enjoy them, it was like, okay cool it was a fun thing but it wasn't like you know in my case i never was uh, was trying to uh find a way for him to give these things no he, he just, offered them all yeah. like hey you want to take that with you uh, yeah sure <laughs> yeah uh but the thing about um ed is over the years i would i would get to know him a little bit uh, in different situations where uh as i got older and uh, spend time with him um we would talk about music, but we, we played some golf sometimes. But he was the guy that called me when the news hit that my dad passed away and it was on like CNN and all this stuff. It, the news hit like real early in the morning, like just before five in the morning. And Ed called uh, like moments after it was on the news. And he that was the first call that came in. Wow. So, you know, that was that was an important thing because he didn't have to do that. Yeah. You know? That's incredible. What a nice guy. I mean, just really had a great yeah. heart. Um, you guys, your relationship obviously progressed over the years. Would he call you to come to 5150 and say, hello, hey, want to check this song out? Yeah, Wanna... sometimes I would go over there. I remember uh, when he, he was playing with a 12-string guitar. Um, he had this telly that was uh, made out to be a 12-string, and then he did uh, that Cabo Wabo uh, uh, song with that. Um, 
and so I remember going up to to see. Uh, he was like, "You got to check out this this twelve string tune," you know. And um, but uh, there were a few times when I went up there, and one time I went up there because he was playing on a record that I was working on, uh, which hasn't come out yet. It's this piece of music that's called "What the Hell Was I Thinking," and it has all these different guitar players on it. Yes. And Ed plays a couple solos in different sections. Um, one of the solos he played was like a greatest hits solo because we were laughing about it. We're like, okay, uh, I want you to play one lick from Push Comes to Shove, one lick from uh, Ice Cream Man, one lick from... And we sort of just took all these things. and But some of it was like, I don't remember that lick. And I would play it for him. I go, it's this one. He goes, well, why don't you fucking play it? Because you <laughs> sound just like me. Uh, but anyway, uh, it was just funny because we're sitting there and uh, he's he's going over like, oh yeah, that's how it goes. And he would, he ended up playing this solo where he just flowed from one lick to another, but we kind of had planned it out so that it would be these, you know, well-known things. And there was one little bit that I remembered hearing from the wildlife soundtrack where he did this kind of like, um, it's the only way I would describe it is his version of like a bebop style lick. And I was like, you got to put in the bebop lick from wildlife. He's like, okay, okay. You know, and he, so we just worked out where these things would go and then he just played it down. And it was this, there was one time where I had to punch in, you know, uh, but this was like the funniest thing was when I did my first record or my first song, my mother's a space cadet, he was operating the tape machine and punching me in. And then when I was doing this thing with him and he was playing on my record, I was operating the tape machine and punching him in. So it was all these little, you know, uh, reverse role reversal type of things that happened over a period of time. Yeah. But that particular day was so great because uh, he was playing from using the same amp from the first record. And I got to play on that sound. And, uh, you know, it was it was really cool. A moving moment. When was the last time you uh, spoke with him? Uh, Did you get to say goodbye when he was sick? Well, see, the thing was, I was always under the impression that he was doing well because whenever I was in touch with him, he said, oh, I'm doing great. Yeah. You know, and so I had no idea he, he, that he wasn't doing well. Paul uh, would talk to him. He actually had came in here uh, in the last couple of years. Wolf was tracking something in Studio 3. He came down for that. I mean, that had to be a really cool moment for his son to track. Yeah, for in sure. The studio that it all happened in. But do you remember the last time you had actually spoke to him? Um, it was, I mean, probably. Everyone's so busy. You're touring around the world. Yeah, I, it was probably a, uh, around a year ago, um, maybe. Uh, but it was just a, a quick phone call. He called up. Just was saying hi. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that's the thing is, um, over the years, I I didn't spend a huge amount of time with him, but the time I did spend with him was so uh, it was it just changed my life in so many ways, and uh, you know, it's an unusual set of circumstances to be able to, to have. Uh, the ability to be in communication with somebody that's so influential. Like before I ever met him, he was influential. Yes. You know? Do you think that he understood the impact he had on people's lives? I mean, he knew he was a giant. I don't know that he gave it a lot of thought. You know, it didn't strike me as that was something that he would um, 
think about in that way. But I think he just, when he could do something that would be positive or helpful or fun, yeah, it, it seemed like something he would do. Like one thing I do know is that if he was inspired by something, he lived in the moment like nobody I've ever seen, you know? So that's how he ended up calling my dad. Like he, he had the access to it. So he said, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, and so he would call people if he found out about something that he liked. He'd be like, "Let's let's do it right now, not tomorrow, not a week from now." If he just heard about something that sounded good to him, he'd be like, "Let's do it," you know. Did he ever mention what songs of your father's he liked? That's one thing I never got a chance to talk to him about. I know that um, the only time I was talking to him about some of my dad's music was uh, he came to uh, a show that I did at. Uh, Staples, uh, where I opened for Jeff Beck. Nice. And so backstage, after my sound check, um, he was asking me about this one song called St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast that uh. we were playing, which has this incredibly hard part. And he was like, how are you doing that? You know? <laughs> so I, I showed him what it was, you know, and, and how, to, uh, how I had to play it. And he just was like, I could never play that. <laughs> So it was really funny to be in that position to, to have him ask me to show him something and then have him say, I could never do that, you know? And it's, it's something that would have been foreign to his playing because there's a lot of different picking techniques involved in, in, to be able to play this one thing. Uh, technically, if he wanted to spend the time to learn it, I'm sure he had the skill to do it. It's just, would he want to spend that much time to learn what that was, you know? Um, it's a very, very hard piece of music, and it took me probably five months to be able to, to play it. And I would play it every day, daily, and it's something that goes by in under a minute. So to spend that many hours to be able to get it to where I could play it up to tempo, because it was never meant to be played on guitar. It was only, uh, it was written for marimba. Was the recordings, um, was that called Crunchy Water? The second song was called Crunchy Water. Okay. So the first song was My Mother is a Space Cadet, and the flip side was Crunchy Water. So cool. Gosh, can yeah. you still get that everywhere? Oh, you can get it on my website. Um, Crunchy Water actually isn't on there yet. I have to put it on there. I just haven't put it up. But you can get My Mother's a Space Cadet on dweezilsabba.com. But on that record, uh, it's, you know, it's a single. Um, it, Ed plays the slide guitar intro, and he also plays a melody on the outro after I play the solo. So I remember when we were recording, uh, he said, hey, can you play slide guitar? I said, I, I mean, I've only just started playing guitar nine months ago. I don't even know how to play slide guitar. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll play the intro for this because it would be fun to hear it on slide instead of just the, the riff the way it, the way it was. Yeah. And uh, he originally got, uh, he brought over his uh, Frankenstrat, uh, the black, white, and red one, um, which had the, uh, the quarter uh, bolted in to, to hold up the Floyd Rose. Uh, but he brought that in. He was like, oh, I think I'll just use your guitar. It'll sound better for this. So he was playing that star guitar with the, the orange lightning bolt. Uh, but he had his guitar there, and we were using an amp that was... Um, uh, made by a company called Acoustic, which they normally, uh, their amps were solid state, but they made a couple of tube amps 
in the early 80s, and my dad used them on stage, and it was a little combo amp, this brown amplifier, and uh, Ed dialed up the sound and, and played it, and that's what it is. Wow. Was your dad's setup called Ma Bell? The, the big setup that he had. The in mother's the, invention. Well, yeah. In, in the middle 70s, he decided he wanted to build a, a, a really specific guitar rig. And he spent about $35,000 um, at that time, which is like $350,000 now. But he had stuff custom made that became what other people ended up doing, which was like switching systems where you could have presets and uh, effects that could be in loops wow. and you could just step on a button and it would turn it on or you could have one button that you step on and multiple things come on at once. None of that stuff had been built. He had a custom thing made to do all of that and it was this spaceship looking thing with all these uh, you know switches and lights but the the effects were taken out of their uh, normal pedal casings and they were put on these cards in the same way that you have in the studio now, you have like um, that lunchbox style power system like API sure. started. The the effects like a Big Muff or, uh, or other kinds of effects were put on those kind of card systems and plugged into a power supply. And that's how those things were uh, maintained. But he just had this... Uh, pedal board that just was this black thing with these big uh, buttons and then big white lights that would turn on to let you know that something was on or off and pedals that could do a volume or a wah but it wasn't the actual wah or volume pedal it was just a, a locked pedal on the board that could be assigned to a wah or a volume so he did all this stuff in the probably like around 1976 and it was operating and it was his main rig until around 1980 but he called it ma bell because it, there were all these patch cables that were like the old style patch cables that uh, a tele telephone operator would have to use not like tt yeah. but look like uh you know quarter inch patch cables and, oh, and stuff wow, like this that's so cool uh, so there's all this gear but the other thing was that my dad's guitars had um uh, preamps in them so that they brought the guitar up to line level, which meant that he could use studio equipment as effects like a DBX-160 or, or an Eventide 949 or uh, he was using these Dynaflanger things made by a company called Mic Mix. And he would be able to get these incredible sounds, but the uh, impedance was matched properly. So when he used that preamp and he was using his amps and things, the guitar had so much gain that he didn't have to use preamp distortion from his amps. He just had the power section. So he didn't have a lot of hiss. He had a really clean sound with tons of gain, tons of clarity, and all this kind of stuff. So he was doing stuff way different than anybody else at yeah. the time. But it wow. was it was an incredible well, system. Just a juggernaut of exploration, yeah. cross-pollination of all, superstorm of all this stuff going yeah. on with him. I mean... He, He's such an incredible person. Uh, we can't leave here without talking about your father and Hot Rats a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of people don't, well, a lot of people associate his music with drugs, but he wasn't into drugs. No, in fact, in the movie Baby Snakes, you can see him uh, on stage. Somebody tries to offer him drugs and he tells him on the microphone, you shouldn't do that. It's bad for you. you know? <laughs> and, and as a kid, I was uh, 
I would go to the, the concerts and I would see people that were acting strange, you know, uh, and I said, what's wrong with those people? Yeah. And I, I remember being like 10 or 11 asking him, and he said, oh, those people have either had too much alcohol to drink or they've taken drugs and they think it gives them an excuse to be an asshole. Wow, I see right on about that. Yeah, so I never took any drugs or never, I've never been drunk. I've never smoked any cigarettes. I've never taken any drugs my whole life because I never had any interest in not being in control of, of my own decision making yes. or whatever. So, um, but that was a, a turning point to be able to see those people and be like a little bit scared as a kid to see people sure. just acting weird, um, like almost like zombies or something, you know. Would um, your mom pack up you and the three other siblings and jump in the car and go down to the L.A. shows? And I went to as many concerts as I could go to. And then when I was old enough to travel, uh, I went to several shows in Europe. I went um, and played on stage with my dad uh, Probably, I think, maybe eight or ten times. But the first time I played with him was at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And I was 12. It was right around the time, like, after we had done My Mother's a Space Cadet. And I played on a song called Stevie Spanking, which is a song my dad wrote about Steve Vai. Oh, and yeah, the this. song was in the key of B, but I really only felt comfortable playing in the key of A. So my dad gave the band a hand signal. He did it like a fist. And they knew that when he did that, they had to drop right from the key of B down to the key of A for my <laughs> solo. And so I started playing and I played the solo. And then uh, when I was done, he gave them the signal to go back up and they finished the song in the right key. And I walked off the stage after my solo was done. But I was, uh, the first time I played in front of a big audience, uh, that was it. You know, there was about 5,000 people there. What and, are you feeling like when you walk off? I mean, even, you know, you understand what music and your father and what's going on, but, I mean, were you just like, that was incredible? <laughs> well, I was terrified, and, of course, I only looked down at the guitar, uh, but it was a fun thing to do because, you know, I was given an opportunity to to feel what it was like to play with really amazing musicians and, and be in a situation where, you know, uh, it was just live. Yeah. You know, whatever happens, happens. How many girlfriends did you have in junior high after Eddie Van Halen came in and uh, tuned your guitar for you? Well, that was pretty good. I, I didn't <laughs> have any problems in that department, but it wasn't really as a uh, result of that, although that probably was a good story to, to be able to share. <laughs> to say the least. What was your – your father was a homebody. He loved being home. He loved his family. I mean, he wasn't – didn't do drugs and alcohol. What would you guys – what kind of father was he at home? Well, that's the thing that I think people would be surprised. He was working all the time. He was always working on music. Uh, and we didn't do a lot of traditional nuclear family type of things. So if we had Thanksgiving, he would only come up when the food was on the table. And then he would leave and go back down and go back to the studio. That seems exactly like him. Yeah. And so, but the things that we did find that were fun activities that we could do, there was a um, game that we loved to play. My dad was amazing at thinking on his feet. Uh, and I can give you a couple of examples. He was once on an interview where the guy was giving him a hard time. And the guy, his name was Joe Pine. And apparently this guy had been known to have uh, some kind of injury where he, he supposedly had a wooden leg. Right? <laughs> so my, my dad so great. 
my dad said, or, or he, he's talking to my dad and he says, so, Mr. Zappa, with your long hair, I guess that makes you a lady. And my dad said, well, with your wooden leg, I guess that makes you a table. Mic drop. Yeah. Now, he was probably 25 at the time, maybe 26. And, you know, if, if somebody was going to be in the position to be the ultimate rebellious question authority, he wasn't just doing it because it was an attitude. My dad was very astute when it came to politics and all these things. So uh, it was like nothing for him to be able to say that. Now, the, the typical person would think for weeks and say, if I could have in that moment, this is what I would have said. But that's just what came out immediately. You know? Sure. So with that in mind. Everyone's getting the, over on him, though. Yeah. Okay. With that in mind, one of the games we played at the house was we like to try to create words that should be in the dictionary but weren't. Uh, and so I wish I had a whole book. I used to have it uh, where we had come up with all these these words. And it would be the word and then it would be the definition. But on one particular occasion, I do remember uh, we were trying to come up with the word that would describe the type of person that only ever wears a rock and roll T-shirt. And so we'd been sitting there, you know, trying to figure out something. Then my dad came in and, and we said, hey, we're trying to figure out what, what this should be. And he took two words and he put them together. And it was the, the word that he, he came up with um, – at, at, right at this moment, I'm spacing on it, so I have to remember it because it, it's uh, uh Oh, here it is. So in two seconds, not even two seconds, like uh, we said, this is we need a word for the kind of person that only wears a rock and roll T-shirt. And he said, insignoramus, which was a combination of insignia, like a logo, and ignoramus. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Good band name. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Wow. Would, uh, I mean, and just such a different time then, you know, in the 70s and 80s when you're growing up, it's not like you had all this Instagram and video games. And I mean, you probably spent a lot. Of, I was born in 83. And, you know, you spent a lot more time with your family then. You know, you did games, you did stuff, and yeah. um, you guys lived in Laurel Canyon. Um, did you guys explore and go hike at all or anything? Well, at that time, you couldn't really do much of that. You know, there was too many cars in the, uh, yeah. the street. It wasn't the safest place to go walking in the street. But um, I spent most of my time in the studio with my dad. When I was 12, the studio was built and functioning. Wow. And I would go practice guitar in there or I would watch what he was doing and I'd learned about recording. And uh, so every day I could, I was in there talking to him about music or how he did things and, wow, that's and all that so stuff. Wow, so incredible to do that with your father too. And yeah, it was at super home, cool. You know, it's like, and it was downstairs, so that's where he was yeah. always at. Yeah, and I can imagine that, you know, Wolfgang probably had many similar kind of experiences. Sure. And, uh, and well, Wolf says that his dad wasn't the greatest teacher for guitar. <laughs> he couldn't explain things properly. And, well, and, and I'm sure it was like, oh, just go like this. And well, like, <laughs> I mean, I, have, I think I've heard and seen interviews where he's like, uh, you know, he asks how to play something and then he has, you know, Ed has the audacity to be Eddie Van Halen and play it the way that he does. And then it's like, well, I can't learn that easy from just that. But I'm sure it, it was really, for Ed, certain things were easy for him. But yeah. uh, I'm sure he was also good at being very encouraging because I, I had that experience myself. So, uh, you know, 
all the things, all the details. I know Wolfgang was uh, really the guy that was excited about putting set lists together, and he really is knowledgeable about all the music, and for good reason, you know. I mean, if that's what you grew up with, it would be just, uh, it'd be amazing. Have you spoke to Wolf recently? I have not. Um, you know, I I would love to chat with him uh, at any time, but... Uh, sure. I mean, he's doing a lot of interviews. I thought that yeah. maybe he would be coming on Running with the Dove. Running with the Dreams. Well, it it would be great if we could do something like that, but uh, you know, it's certainly up to him. But uh, uh, I, I just, oddly enough, we have a, a, one thing that we could say is in common, which is you know we we grew up with guitar playing dads, you know yeah. that that made an impact on on music and uh, guitar playing gods. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Not fiddling around with uh, Can't You See by Marshall Tucker Band. This is from Zappa and Eddie Van Halen. Um, just a few more stuff, and I want to talk about Hot Rats, and then uh, your new platform, Reward. Had you heard of a guitar player named Spider Taylor? That name does not sound familiar to me. Who is Spider Taylor? Uh, well, apparently he was a big influence and a badass that uh, Eddie loved going to see in L.A. at the time and was in a band called Pod at one point and we're kind of finding out who Spider Taylor was from the Doug Messenger interview. Yeah. And I didn't know if you had ever heard that name or heard well, it around I'm L.A. Well, I'm going to be checking it out years. now. How about Volar, Volt, Volar X? Now, that I had heard a little bit about that the weirdo band, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's that's just... In my world, my dad was... There were always the original. <laughs> there, there were always like some people that were doing things that were oddball stuff. So hearing things like that wasn't that shocking, you yeah. know. And so sometimes it would be more of a gimmick, and sometimes people were just actually that weird, you know. But it it really depends on person. Do you think? What do you think about like Fish, the band? So the in band to your dad. Well, they play some of my dad's music, and they have a, a fan base that um, massive. Uh, yeah, is is huge. Like that's one of those things where if you describe, okay, here's here's what's going to be really successful, you would not think that that could ever work on paper. That doesn't work at all. Yeah, you know, but yet they made it work. So that's one of those fascinating things about uh, sometimes things that are not necessarily super commercial can really reach people but uh what is that recipe i don't know i mean it may have something to do with like a counterculture thing where people are into certain you know uh maybe drug related things i don't know but the the thing about it is they're able to do whatever they want to do creatively and people come up and support them and that's that's amazing. Yeah. You know, they can do whatever they want and people are there. Uh, your father did hot rats in this room. We don't know how much, but I've, uh, from the work orders, a lot of days, and uh, the album was dedicated to you. Yep. Uh, you have Captain Beefheart with uh, some vocals on Willie uh, the Pimp. Willie the Pimp. Yeah. Um, Lil George was on that album from Little Feet. Yeah, Lil George and my dad, uh, they did some playing together and had some, um, uh, for a brief period, he was in the band on tour. Oh, okay, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. Wow. 
How do you play this stuff without sheet music? I mean, your commitment to memory and all your band members throughout the years, and even his band members, I mean, it's just insane. It's called rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, but just it months and months and months and months. Uh, but sometimes we don't have months and months to get it done because, you know, financially you can't oh, yeah. uh, afford to spend that much time or money on, on just the rehearsal. So I would have to do a lot of stuff on my own. That record was hard. When we were learning it to play it live, the the challenge with that one is certain things on that record need to be played just as they are on the album because that is the version. Mm -hmm. So something like um, uh, Green Jeans, um, you know, Son of Mr. Green Jeans, that guitar solo and the, the overdubs and the textures that are on there, I learned that guitar solo note for note because that was so important for that song. But learning a guitar solo like that note for note is much harder than just learning a song because you're learning phrases, you're learning to get the right sound, you're learning all of these things that it's, it's like trying to memorize the phone book because <laughs> if you fall off... <laughs> you know, and for me, that was the case a couple times on tour where I was like, you know, I spent so much time learning this solo note for note that I wasn't necessarily paying attention to what the chords are that I'm playing over and the structure of the song. So if I spaced and I lost where I was, I'd have to start the song over because I didn't, I didn't have a way to get to the next thing because I, I would suddenly be like... Uh, I'd just be totally lost. I could not play it unless I could stay focused on doing it as it was, you know? So there were probably like, I don't know, four or five times on the tour where I had to start it over because I was like, I don't want to play this badly for you. I'm going to just start again yeah. because, you know, this is what it is. I think I've seen that. One show I just watched of yours, I watched all these great shows because they're all HD now and great yeah. audio was you were in Kansas City. Oh, Knuckle Bones or, or something like knuckleheads, that? Knuckleheads, Knuckle yeah. Bones, something. Yeah. But it's a whole two-hour, three-hour concert and the Rolo on that is fucking so good. Yeah, that's a great, great <laughs> tune, man. That one uh, is, it's, so the the song uh, uh, Rollo is the, the piece of music that it, started as then became part of the song uh, St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. So my dad would do stuff like that where he'd write something and then he would insert it in different places at different times. So it might have a life of its own as a single piece of music or it might get stuck into something else and live there as well. And that particular thing was written for orchestra and marimba in mind. Um, but uh, it's an incredible piece of music. But then you also have these kind of silly lyrics about this guy who has a little dog. And recently, uh, I, I have a dog that just showed up at our house. It had no chip and no owner, and we tried to find you know, who it was, but we just ended up adopting the dog. And it's not your Instagram story, then. I was just trying to yeah. figure out. I go, oh, my God, I want to get a dog. Yeah, well, this, this little dog, is uh, he's got a buddy now that lives down the street, and together um, we joke that they have a band. And so that they're in rehearsals and they're, you know, they're called Rufus and Rollo. 
And, you know, so they're doing their Instagram just like everybody does their Instagram <laughs> every day. It's our friend is, uh, you know, the, the owner of the other dog, Rufus. She's the one who's, like, doing, you know, the posting. But we, we just kind of have some fun with it because, you know, it's like uh, you see the dog. It looks really sleepy. It looks like it's just been woken up. It's like, well, mom just woke me up for band practice, you know. And it's just kind of a silly thing. It, it, you awesome. know, we don't take it seriously, but it's uh, – it's just fun to, to, to see the dogs having fun. and uh, But this dog is a super fun personality, and he just showed up, and he's raw now. Do your – you have two kids? Yeah. Do – are any of them interested in music or – I think they like music, but they don't have the same kind of uh, drive to learn instruments in the same way that, that I did. But who knows? Maybe one day they'll – They'll get more into it, but... Um, it's the times we live in, wouldn't you agree? I mean, you didn't have a lot to do back then. Even when I was growing up, I learned piano initially, and I that's what I did, because you didn't have... You played outside, made forts, threw firecrackers at each other, and then, you know, I'd go in and have piano practice, dinner, and then go to school the next day and do it all over again. Now it's yep. just a completely different thing where it's all this stuff and TikTok videos is the new yeah. guitar. It's fucking absurd. It's, it's it breaks crazy. my skin crawl. I mean, it's just, <laughs> ugh, TikTok especially. It's just, it, it's insane. And it's like yeah. now you can be famous just like that when you get a, you know, from one little 30-second video or I don't even know, what is it, seven seconds? Yeah, well, the thing is, like, uh, you know, to have the desire to just be famous and not actually have a talent... That's what it is, though, right? Yeah, well, but that became a thing, you know, but I don't I don't know how or why, but it's, uh, you know, at least it's, it's better when somebody has an actual talent. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, sometimes people can make funny videos on there, but it's, I don't know how that becomes a career or anything. For some very few people, they can turn it into something. But the weird part is that... Um, so many people's uh, self-esteem is based on the reactions they get to videos. And I find that to be sad for, you know, teenagers uh, because they don't know any different because it's just what it is for them, yeah. you know. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's terrible to have to be under that kind of pressure to be trying to not only have your friends you would see day to day, but other people out in the world that – are just super judgmental yeah. to just have access to say whatever they want to say and just not be, you know, they can be complimentary or they can be brutal and it's just not. Exactly. Yeah. But the, the thing is everybody knows all you have to do is just turn it off, but people can't turn it off because you get addicted to that, yeah. that thing. But in reality, if you don't like it, don't watch it. Don't do it. Don't look at it, you know, but it's harder to do for, for kids. So I have some fan questions here, and then let's talk about reward. And I sure. appreciate you spending so much time with us. This is awesome. Um, these just came in. There's about 490 in 10 minutes. But uh, did Randy Rhodes learn everything from Ed? I don't think that's the case. I think Randy Rhodes uh, was a, a guy that was very focused on – classical guitar but he also loved rock guitar and and sure. he was able to blend the two together but was he aware of ed's playing absolutely and when you hear him do the solo on flying high again 
that's definitely yeah. some tapping style stuff, but it's it's done in a different way. It's done over a, a chord progression that is accompanied by a band. Um, but, you know, I, I think that he had his own thing for sure. Uh, Randy Rhodes was incredible with his um, songwriting and uh, arranging skills, the way that he would put guitar parts together. Yep is really, really amazing. It's, uh, was very inspiring, uh, as a kid. Um, and I mean, I, I still can get into it and appreciate what he did, but, uh, I don't think that Ed ever specifically showed him anything, but yes, I know Randy was aware of, of and inspired. Point. Sure. All right, let's get through here. Get some good. All right, here you go. Will you ever finish the What the Hell Was I Thinking project, which features just about every cool guitar player on the planet, including EVH? Yes, and that's something I'm planning to do. Um, I've never had a place to work of my own. I never had a studio to work in. And this is a project that uh, really takes a lot of time to think about how to put it together the way that it ultimately in my head was designed to be because it's an audio movie. That's the best way to describe it. It changes from moment to moment. It's completely all instrumental. It's guitar, bass, and drums. There's no other instruments uh, on the on this piece of music. So it's guitar doing things guitar wouldn't normally do. Like I make the guitar sound like bagpipes or you know, there's different things that happen, but it's the guitar taking on these different roles. And then these guest appearances take place. And so it's like from moment to moment, the style of music changes. And then you just hear different guitar players falling out of the speakers, you know. So Angus and Malcolm Young are on it. Edward Van Halen's on it. Steve Lukather, Steve Vai, Steve Morris, Brian Setzer, Warren oh, Martini. Um, I mean, there's there's a ton of people. But... The thing is, I, there's other people I'd still like to be able to get on there. I'd love to have Jeff Beck on there. I'd love to have Jimmy Page on there. I'd love to have Dave Gilmore on there. Um, but there's a lot of newer players, too, that are great players that would be great to have on there. You know, guys like Guthrie Govan or... Gary uh, Clark Jr. Gary Clark Jr. would be great on there. Uh, so there's lots of different people. So what I'm doing is I'm orchestrating it so that I can add more people that are from this generation of guitar players as well as the other stuff because I really want it to just be an exploration of everything that you can do with a guitar all in one place. Brian May's on there, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, oh, but, my God. But uh, the thing is, it's a... It's, I, I also want to be able to mix it in Atmos. I want to be able to have this full surround up and over your head, down your back kind of thing and make it a three-dimensional experience. And so that's that's something that um, is going to take place as well. And I'm sure it'll be released on Reward Music when... It will, when come. it's done, yeah. All right, next up, which... Oh, are there any recordings in the vault of Eddie jamming with you and, and your father? Not that you know of? There definitely are not. Okay, definitely are not. Which VH tunes was... Eddie surprised you knew, and did you remind me? Did you remind me of specific guitars on his own songs? That was one of the coolest things about Van Halen. Also, was all the different guitars for the different tours. Yeah, the stuff for he sure. Played. I mean, he was all over the place. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the songs that 
I tried to learn as much of it as I could over the years. Um, but for me right now, if I sat down to learn something, I would be able to do it much better than I ever could in the past because I've had so many years of having to learn my dad's music and train really hard, you know, ear training to learn hard parts. So now it would be a little easier for me to pick out some things, but I'd love to uh, pick out everything that's going on and push comes to shove the little flanger guitar parts, the clean bits that dovetail, you know, I never sat down to learn any of that stuff, but it would be, be fun to, um, to do that. Uh, and there's, there's just a ton of stuff that, that he could do that is not natural to my playing that would actually be good for me to spend some time just to develop some of that skill. How do you have the time? To do I don't, that? I mean, I can't I do anything and I don't yeah. have two kids and a wife and yeah. One of the greatest memories I got to say was when I first heard your father, I was 14. My friend had a 1983 Mercedes at Michigan City, Indiana High School, and I was just blown away. And uh, my friend Miles Kuchek had this old Mercedes. We'd skip school and go listen to Frank albums. And I think that your dad's music is so important. And for people to have the opportunity to see it live, which I have, and it's yeah. incredible. It's an incredible experience to to do well, that. I don't know. I had to tell you that story because I mean, well, your father's music, music means a lot to me. Music hits people in different ways, and yeah. certain artists can totally make a difference in somebody's life. And I hear that from people about my dad's music uh, all the time. People will say, "The moment I heard it, it changed my life forever." And they hear music differently because of the music, because it was something that they they could hear it and think. I never knew you could even do that with music. It just opened all these doors. I think Van Halen's the same way for a lot of people who might have been steeped in traditional rock. Ed definitely opened up some doors. Yes. Uh, you know, more than opened up, up he, he laid waste to any door that was in front of him. You know, <laughs> he just Shred crashed it down. Through. Yeah, but that's the thing is when you do something that is really your own thing, it can change people's lives, and and I hear it from people uh, frequently. What was your dad's final goal when he found out the diagnosis? Did he want to do one last big symphony orchestra recording? Did he want to be with? His... I think he did what he could. You know, creatively, he kept doing music. Um, he was obviously not thrilled to to hear the diagnosis, but he stuck around longer than was expected. But at the point where he couldn't do what he wanted to do, it was uh, it was hard because he no longer could he couldn't play guitar, he couldn't sit and write music on paper, uh, he couldn't sit for a very long period of time uh, in front of a computer screen, which could have helped him make more music. So at a certain point, he couldn't do any of that anymore, and he would just be watching television. And, you know, that was just uh, really depressing. I remember uh, I was just tying my shoe and he said, I remember when I could do that, you know? And that was just one of those things where you go, man, like life is really messed up when you, mentally he had everything he needed. Yeah. Physically couldn't do it. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, also losing your, I lost my dad when I was 26. You were 24. I I block it out. I think I was yeah. 22. It's a tough period. It sucks. Um, all right. Let's uh, one more of these 
Let me see if I can find a good one. Did you ever play music for your dad that you two bonded with and vice versa? Were you ever told you listened to garbage? If so, what artist albums? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, my dad was interested in any kind of music, so he would just listen to anything at face value, and if he liked it, he would say, this is really good, I really like this. Or he'd be like, ah, oh, it's not for me. Uh, he didn't get super judgmental and say, that's horrible, you know, no one should ever listen to that. Um, because he knows the plight of a musician. I remember there was a time where uh, we were in Frankfurt at a hotel, and there was a guy just playing piano, and my brother, Amit, started making fun of the guy. He went over there and he was like kind of dancing around and just doing jokey stuff. And my dad, who never raised his voice, uh, you know, when Amit came back, he just said, don't ever do that again. Wow. He said, that guy, that's, that's his job. Yeah. You know, he's playing music. That's you know? awesome. And it was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, he stood up for that guy. It's funny that your brother was doing that then too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, he got called out for it, but, um, uh, you know, it was, the point is that to play music and take it seriously, if you know what it takes to do it, you're not going to be that judgmental like that. You're going to be like, oh, let me hear what you have. And like, if it's great, you know, all more power to you. Cause I mean, you know, th this is a tough 100%. business. So we're doing a virtual concert here at Sunset Sound. We're super excited. It's never been done before. You know, everything's in-house. We have five bands that are coming in. It's going to be amazing. Hopefully, you know, I totally understand <laughs> the possibility. I want to be able to do it. I, uh, I just would have to figure out because some of the guys um, are in another state and, uh, you know, like some of them are in New York. And I mean, you've got COVID going yeah. on. but Yeah, we got to figure out what we can do. But... One way or another, we'll, we'll figure out something, uh, if it's for this upcoming event or a future one, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm into it. I'm excited for any artist that gets a chance to do it, to, to first of all, just be able to record something in here or be in these rooms. But then if their audience is going to get a chance to, to hear the music and see it in a cool space, it's just... It's like we were talking about earlier. If something like this had existed in the heyday of record making, where you could be a fly on the wall and see, like, what is the value of that to a fan? Like, how much would somebody have paid yeah. to watch Jimi Hendrix record his albums or watch Van Halen each time they came in here, you know, and just be able to see it from their home and be a fly on the wall? It's like, it's incredible that technology exists that can can have this happen, but... As a fan, and you have the ability to support somebody directly and and be part of this unique event, that's just you know that's one of the most important things that can help artists in this day and age in the new version of the music business in COVID times and all that stuff. So you guys are being able to do something that will help people enjoy music, help artists get out there and keep current and do things that they want to do, but. It's just really going to be uh, a cool thing to be a part of. Well, I mean, once you told me and owner Paul uh, last week about this, it was like, this is all, we were already kind of leaning to doing stuff like this. And now with reward music and the, you know, you guys on the back end being able to put this out everywhere at such a, you know, a high quality, 
is just so exciting for us. And it's like, you know, we have the virtual concert. It's going to be the first thing we're going to do. But, you know, all these Van Halen roundtables, when we go into Prince next month and start talking to all the engineers and exploring all his work orders and everything we can find, you know, now we just have this place that's not YouTube where we just get ripped off. It's, you know, we can't do what we want. We can't keep our email list. We can't do anything. It's our own network, and every artist can do that, and you can come in here and do a live stream from Sunset Sound. It's incredible. Yeah, there's definitely... Uh, a lot of advantages that people should explore for for what it is. But at the end of the day, an artist and a fan connecting directly and having a curated experience is is the real value here. And and instead of thinking that you, as an artist, have to try to cast the widest net and reach the most amount of people, you know, instead of thinking, oh, I got to try to make a dollar from a million people, think maybe you can create a relationship with a fan base and you have 10,000 people that want to spend $100 because they like all the things that you want to do. You know, mathematically, it works out the same. Exactly. But it's a better experience for the fans that are really into it and want to support you directly. So just artists have to have a new way of thinking about how to connect with their their fans. And then they can have a, a, a... you know, a self-supporting uh, career based on that that interaction that they can have with the fans. Oh, and it's just like every artist, big or small, is going online. And, you know, I have friends that are just playing from home, doing like the Venmo tip jar. You can do all that on there, but you can also have your merch on there. And there's a community where you can interact with other artists. It's everything. It's a one-stop shop. You don't have to be giving your email lists away anymore. You don't have to be owned by Facebook and Google and YouTube. And you can actually, I mean, anybody that knows if you get hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube and Spotify, it results to very little. Monetarily, yeah. So people are living for this idea that you're reaching all these people, but the people that are actually monetizing it and making all the money are the platforms that you're using and you're giving away this stuff when you put it on there. So... There's no reason that you couldn't use your social media to say, hey, I've, I've got this thing. It's great. I hope you join me and check this out. Uh, but check me out at my website or one location that is the place where you want them to go. So you can promote it in all these places. Yeah. But why why not be the, the person that benefits from it yourself uh, so that you can sustain yourself and, and keep your lights on and feed your family and all these things? You know, uh, YouTube and... Instagram and Facebook and all these things have these, uh, you know, it, it gives you an easy way to get in front of a lot of people, and that's why people like it. But they don't understand that if you're trying to actually support yourself, you need uh, you need to not be making nano pennies on your content. Exactly, and also, let's say you have a hundred thousand subscribers on your Instagram page, and you put up a little clip of, or a full song on IGTV or something, you're only reaching about 3% of that 100,000 people. And then, you know what you have to do is boost your posts. And then you might reach half of it and spend hundreds of dollars boosting to reach your own audience. Yeah, that definitely is not something that sits well with with people once they start really investigating that that's what's happening. But the other thing is, you know, you need to have the ability to reach your audience directly in a permission-based 
situation. So you need to create an email list. You need to have those people that say, yes, I want to know more about what you're doing. And that's really the grassroots way to do yeah. it. And that's the, the sustainable way for, for artists to, to build something. And if you build it from the ground up that way from the beginning, you're so far ahead of the game. It's so morally great, which I was saying to you earlier, that artists can keep everything they make. They can keep track of it. I don't know about you, but I can't even remember my Gmail password and you know, got Instagram and Twitter and Shopify and you're selling your merch through Printful and all these different things. It's all here. You can do your merch on here. You could sell a ticket for five bucks. And if somebody wants to buy a shirt too, they can get that for eight bucks. Everything they have there. And you're going to have merch manufacturers too, or you already yeah, do. Yeah. yeah. So the thing is you, as an artist, you control everything uh, and you get a hundred percent of your sales. Now, obviously people can say, well, what if you have partners? You whatever your partners are, whatever yes. you do with a record company, or you know, th those are on you to uh, to deal with your partnerships. But theoretically, what's happening here is you have the ability to link your bank account to your website, and you can sell your music, your performances. You can do your music lessons. You could do cooking lessons. You could do yoga. You could do whatever you want. You can make it pay-per-view. You can make it for free. You can have any access uh, available to uh, your content, uh, but from one location. So think of it this way. If you were an artist, okay, if you're a brick-and-mortar business and you're a bank, for example, if you walked in, the person that runs the bank is going to sit you down and they're going to set you up with an account. They don't want you to walk out the door. They want to keep you as a customer. Yep. But as an artist in today's modern age, they'll build a website that has seven locations to take you from their website on the front page. It'll say, oh, follow me at Twitter, follow me at Facebook, follow me at all these places. Yeah. So as soon as you get them to walk in, you tell them to go away. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't make any sense. And yep. then think about it like this. If Twitter wants to reach you, they don't tweet to you. They email you because they have your email. And Same with Apple or Amazon. Yes. They don't use social media to get to you. They use your email. So what does that tell you? You want to have your fans' emails so you could be in touch with them directly. You want to have them come to one location and not go down a rabbit hole somewhere else. Yep. You want them to be able to access all the good things you have to offer and build a relationship with them right there. And it's not only for musicians. It's for anybody. Like you said, if you have a great yoga class that's going good on YouTube or on Facebook Live, I mean, go to rewardmusic.com and we're going to generate some kind of coupon code or something that we're going to do sunset 10, sunset free month that we'll put up on the screen when we air this. But it's, <laughs> it's really, it's made so that you can create a better relationship with your fans, know more about what they are interested in, and you have that ability to reach them right away. So, for example, if somebody makes a sale, you know, if somebody buys something on my site, I'll get a notification, and I will write to them personally right yeah. afterwards because, you know, I thank them for supporting me, and then I tell them other things that are coming up, or if they have questions, they at that point, they can just ask me questions. So... This is the kind of relationship that can be built with a fan. It may, for some people, go, oh, well, it takes the mystique away because, you know, I want to be able to think of a, my favorite band on a pedestal. Well, go ahead if you want to. But other people want to have a good relationship that 
that has, where they feel like we're all in this together in a way, because we're connected through music, but we're living in a time where you can't even play live music. It's, it's difficult. So why not create something that makes it easier to, to make it sustainable and help, and it's reciprocal. So that's why it's reward yeah. music. If you support someone, the more you do, the more points, the more love you show, the more rewards grow, you know? It's so awesome you're doing this too, especially with how your father stands. Can you tell the story real quick? I, I have to ask this. Sure. When the label, he was on a label that wasn't his own. Yeah. They, he had a five album deal with yeah. them. Which uh -huh. is briefly, you got to tell that story. Well, so my dad was working with Warner Brothers okay, at, yeah, at the Warner time. Brothers, yeah. And uh, so he didn't like how things were going and he wanted to just complete the deal. So he turned in five albums all at once. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Get the fuck out Yeah, here. so that completed the deal, but Legend. it ended up in a big lawsuit because they they didn't think that that was an acceptable way to uh, make the deal be completed. My dad ended up winning the lawsuit, but at that point it really changed sort of contract law because it used to be that you weren't uh, told by the label when you could go in and when you couldn't. Yeah. Now you have really specific rules of how, when you can record and how long you have to wait till the next time or whatever. So nobody could do what my dad did, you know, just turn it all in at once and say, okay, we're done. That's a legend. Yeah. He, he, a lot of artists owe your dad a lot for what he did for the Senate hearings which you went to yeah well, i was right? there for the pmrc hearings yeah. you know and and that was an interesting policing thing. lyrics i mean your dad's they weren't policing his lyrics they were policing well some people were trying to say that my dad's lyrics were totally unacceptable and uh but the the whole point there was that you shouldn't be able to have uh, the government telling you what is music what is tolerable as music what you can and cannot write about yeah, And that's where this kind of stuff was going. Because my dad had another situation once where uh, he was supposed to play a concert in England and the, uh, it was an orchestral concert and it didn't even, this piece of music that they were playing was instrumental. But the orchestra decided that it was pornographic. So how could notes be pornographic? The name of the song was Penis Dimension. <laughs> and they, they refused to play it and there was a... Um, uh, a, a lawsuit, which my dad again won because you can't say that music, just the notes, the music itself cannot be pornographic, but he wasn't able to receive any rewards for it because the venue was owned by the queen. It was the Royal Albert Hall. So you oh, can't wow. sue the queen. And so he went through this whole crazy thing there. But the Senate thing was interesting because my dad's opening argument, which was pretty hilarious, was he said that the PMRC is treating this problem like treating dandruff by decapitation. Greatest line ever. <laughs> I've heard that before. It's so genius. Was he constantly reading books all the time? Because his vocabulary, his mindset, how he would you know, even do interviews was just so cutting edge and kind of before it's time. And I don't know how else. he got around it, but, I mean, he had – he must have had somewhat of a photographic memory because there were certain things that he had total recall over. Yeah. Like even the spine of his uh, uh, album collection, he could tell you 
you know, like a serial number or the, you wow. know, if it was like a DECA record or whatever, he could tell you what's on that tiny little spine. So he must have been such an outcast in his family that, that he devoted so much time and attention to detail on these things that were important to him. Self-taught, too, in the library. Completely, when he was yeah. in 10 years old, going to the yep. library, San Bernardino uh, area? At that point, I think, yeah, probably probably in that area. Yeah, I mean, that's where your dad grew up, though, kind of. Well, he grew up, he, he was born in Maryland, and he lived in Florida briefly. Then he was in a few places in California, up north, like Santa Cruz area, and then... Victorville? Uh, I don't remember exactly where. Like a couple different places, and then um, ended up in, well, like... Uh, San Bernardino area, uh, but he was also down in um, San Diego, San Diego area yeah. too. So there was he was moved around a bit. Well, this I mean it's free for thirty days, also to start up on Reward Music, and then the packages start at twenty bucks a month. That's right. I mean that's so incredibly cheap. This is this is the wave of the future. I, I mean I can't re repeat that enough. But the point about uh, Sunset Sound being able to do this with, for artists is that you're going to get a huge advantage of having incredible audio going through historical pieces of equipment. And then you're going to have a camera crew, which you could have multiple cameras. You could have a live switching system. So this can actually be well lit and have great editing that's live happening all at once. And there's production value in all of this. And anybody can set that up. You could have a, a camera switching system of your own and sure. do it from your living room. But the point is that uh, you can do it now. You can do it from your laptop or your phone or from a studio, but you can create things that are events that are behind a paywall. Yeah. So you have an instant ability to be your own broadcast network. You have your own community so that you're like your own Facebook or Instagram. People can hang out there, comment, post pictures, and live their life on your site, yes. you know? And that's that's what you want, is you want this sense of community and you want this ability to reach people. And, and your them. whole audience. Yeah. Not just 5% or what the algorithm yeah, is for complete, that day. Yeah, your complete audience. At, you know, what are your goals? Having 100,000 views on something or streams or having a little paper in your pocket and actually having a great experience with your fans, reaching all your fans, owning all your own emails, controlling your merch, everything. I mean, it's just, we're going to be updating our website with more stuff about Reward Music. We're going to come up with some kind of coupon code that we can discuss. and Yeah, we'll know. make it possible for people to have a two-month trial period and enjoy what they can, learning how to put their whole thing together and seeing what they can do. Uh, because there's so many tools. For, for you to be able to do what Reward does all in one place, you'd have to sign up and use multiple other services that don't necessarily connect well with each other. So you're using separate things, trying to cluge it together to make it work, whereas this is all integrated. It's a, a no-brainer, and I hope every artist from the top tier to the, the person that's just starting off on guitar and wants to play some songs goes to rewardmusic.com. And um, I'm so glad that you started this oh, because thanks. it's so, you know, you have... Um, you know, it's verified by you. It's it's kind of similar to what your dad was involved in. It's uh, it makes sense coming from you. I guess is what I'm trying well, to say. Well, I I appreciate. It. I mean, a lot of people worked hard to to sure. make this work, but it's um it's built for it's built for independent musicians first and foremost because they've never had the advantage of having these kind of tools right in front of them. 
And so you could literally be a person who's put your little band together in your mom's basement and start, you know, like the second week of your band, you could be up and running and already trying to bring people to your, your place. And you would never have to, I mean, obviously you can use, like we said, you can use your social media to tell people to come to the one location. But when you want to get people to support you directly, you want their emails, you want that permission fan base right away. And the earlier you do it as an independent artist, the better off you are. And also, it's like people don't get freaked out. You don't have to get rid of your Instagram and your 100,000 followers or your Facebook or your YouTube. Use that to promote it to come on here and yeah, you're not going to lose anything. Yeah, you're still people are going to find you the same way. It's just you're, now you have these tools that are powering your website and it makes it all integrated and easier for the artist to not have to try to think of, okay, what kind of content do I have to give to my people that live at Facebook? And what do I have to give them who live at exactly. Instagram or Twitter? You, you don't have to think in those terms. You just make the thing, you focus more on the creative part of what your job is, making the best music you can make. And then you have people show up to the one place that you make it as exclusive as, as you can. So people know that that's the place they're going to get what your latest offerings are. Now, Lots of artists are going to say, well, but, you know, of course I want to be on Spotify and I want to be on Apple and I want to be on these places. You can be on those places too. Yeah. But if you want to really have people support you directly and do show up for you with the most important things you're doing, why not be in a position to say, this is my main focus. This is my exclusive place where I'm giving you the best stuff that I have to offer because there you can have that direct relationship. You're not getting nano pennies. You're getting a hundred percent of your sale. I mean, just as an example, if you were doing something where you had uh, a $2 and 50 cent a month subscription, which ends up being $30 a year kind of thing. Right. Uh, so if you had just, uh, 700 people that were subscribing to you at that rate, you would be reaching the federal minimum wage, right? <laughs> so now you can't live on minimum wage, but that's $15,080 is like federal minimum wage, right? But it would take you 3.8 million streams on Spotify to make that money. Wow. I can't make that money on Spotify. I, not in five or 10 years could I make that money on 99% Spotify. 99% of artists can't do that. Yeah, and so it's it's very difficult because of the way this all works. Uh, so that's why it's more important to have that relationship that you can build where you're in direct communication with your, your fan base. And the more artists can do that and the more the fans understand it and the more everybody can can kind of root for each other in that way, the better. Because look, I get it. At this point in time, people don't have a lot of pocket change. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, but if you do have the ability to, uh, and you like somebody's music, they're struggling. You should, instead of buying a cup of coffee, buy a song. Buy a you podcast. Know? Yeah, do something. But I mean, that, if you can, that's the way to do it, as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, I'll buy some stuff off of iTunes or whatever. The artists are getting, you know, pennies on the dollar for all that kind of stuff. So uh, it really does make a difference. 
I'm just, I mean, I want to turn everybody on to this because I think so grand that we as musicians all over the world could really take music back, take back the music industry and not get, keep getting raped by everybody. Well, the thing is, you know, uh, artists that are on a label can still work with reward. It will help labels as well because the, the tools that are already inherently um, there integrated in reward give labels unprecedented information on who's buying the records, what they like, when they're buying it, you know, all these things that were much harder to, uh, to, to quantify before you're going to have real time data and it's all transparent accounting, which helps the artists, yep. you know? Uh, so it is what it is. So the thing about it is it's no different than any other store except that you have much more control and it's transparent and you have the ability to have that direct relationship. It's, it's not like we reinvented the wheel in terms of like, oh, you, you could still have all your stuff in all these places. Yeah. It's just if you focus on driving people to the place that will benefit you the most, that's what makes the most sense. Yep. It's a no-brainer for me. I think once this gets out everywhere, it's going to be gigantic. And people, you know, I just, they should own and control all their stuff, especially indie artists, and get something out of it. You know, we live in a world that we need money <laughs> to live in. So, yeah. and if you're on Facebook going live every Friday, try doing it on Reward, getting a few people to come over. And you don't have to have a reward membership to view artists. You can come. Right. If you're just a fan, you can a, be surfing and check somebody out on their yeah. website and do all that stuff. It's, it's when you join their community is when you get the benefits of everything. If you sign up and you have your email and, and you participate in, in things in the community, you start earning reward points. So if something was going to cost you $25, but you've been on the site, uh, you know, posting things and watching stuff and listening to things and doing just what you would do if you were watching, you know, YouTube, you're actually earning reward points. So at a certain point, that $25 thing is now $20, yep. you know, That's and, cool. and it's just nothing different. You just, are, you get to do what you would normally do, but it benefits you by doing it in that place with that artist. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're just trying to help people understand the plight of the artist and have artists be able to work to make better music and give their fans a better experience and a, a more curated experience. And reward music doesn't take any percentage of any of the artist's sales. Nothing. You know, so reward music is just a, a place that is hosting websites and and hosting uh, the ability for, for artists to uh, to present their their music I like to put all my stuff in one place and have everybody come there and once they're there they find everything they need and they don't have to leave to get it and that's what this is yeah well again rewardmusic.com you'll catch sunset sounds virtual concert which I'm gonna bug Dweezil for the next two months <laughs> to please come and play some tracks for us on um, his podcast, Running with the Dweezil, you can go to dweezilzappa.com, which That's is right. a reward power site now. Yep. And what else do you got going on? Family life? That's pretty much it, you know. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to make some new music, too, get back to working on what the hell was I thinking, and, That's you know, hopefully stuff. we'll be able to start playing live music again in 2021, but, you know, uh, I don't 
I don't know. I don't know how that's all going to work out. We're just going to keep doing things and creating more new uh, fun things for people to listen to and just be part of something. Our, is the East Coast, and I know I got some peeps down in Austin, Texas. They're playing music down there. Are you entertaining the idea of going to the places that are having live music? Well, it becomes difficult because the, the expenses oh, haven't yeah. changed but yet what you can make from doing it it's has changed. 10% of what the, can fill the venue. Yeah, you still have the, wow. the costs of the travel and all of these things. You know, a, a tour bus is not cheap. I mean, <laughs> it's going to run you at least $1,000 a day. And now if you have to play for a half house or a third house and, and you get less guarantees, now suddenly you can't afford to even operate the tour the way uh, that it used to, to go. So, you know, it's this is... This is crushing for the industry and all the crews that help bands, you know, like there's, um, that's a real big challenge too. Like people that are into, in the music industry but don't make music who are yeah. the ones that set up the equipment or, or do the recording or whatever, that kind of stuff. Everybody's hurting that they have to find other things to do. Yeah. My friend, Mike Fackler, he's uh, Gary Clark Jr.'s stage manager. Yeah. Done. I mean, it's like, what do you do? That's what he's done. He's done Willie Nelson. Even I think back to Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie and those guys. Yeah. You know, all the Texas guys. And that's what he's done his whole life, you know. I think he, I don't want to say his age, but, you know, it's it's yeah. it's crushing everybody. So, I don't know. And also at Reward Music, if you want to check out uh, Dweezil's podcast like I did, you can buy just one. You don't have to buy the whole season or the whole package. I mean, there's so many different ways you could do it. And also remember that for if you're uploading content, if you want to put them at buck a piece or the whole thing for 10 bucks, same as like an iTunes setup. Well, that's the thing. You have total flexibility as, as an artist. You can, you can decide what you want to charge for whatever you're doing. And you have different ways to present it to people so that it's affordable in any way that they can enjoy it. So you can do bundles or you can do a la carte purchases. You can do anything. Um, it's very flexible. Plus... It also has the ability to, let's say you are selling stuff in all 50 states, it will do all the taxes on oh, yeah. those sales and it will export it to QuickBooks. So this thing is operating on so many levels, so many services all bundled into one thing that just starts at $20 a month. It's incredible what's built into this thing. It really is worth a look just to see what you can have it do for you. It's incredible. Yeah. All right, we covered a lot of ground from did. Eddie to Reward to Frank to Dweezil. Um, thank you so much for coming in. I mean, you're yeah, such an you. uh, intelligent, well-experienced legend for me in the I music industry it. and personality. And, uh, you know, your podcast is doing so well. I think it's amazing. And I think these kind of things are how Van Halen... Uh, the thing is, there's there's a little space for people that are are sad about not being able to have it continue on the way they're used to. And this little space exactly. of just being able to share stories like what we're doing here, you know, talking about the things that they did and in, in the studio and the people they work with, you know, that little bit of stuff can actually help somebody get through their day, you know, and, and it, it may end up being something that makes them happy and, and who doesn't want to have something that makes them happy right now, you know, a hundred percent. Next up, we have Peggy McCreary, who was uh, famous for working with Prince for 10 years, but she also was assistant engineer on VH1 and worked on Van Halen 2 as well. 
And the man himself, Ted Templeman, is going to be coming in this room very shortly. Thank you very much. Thank you.